Welcome to the Get Your Writing Done podcast. I'm Trevor Thrall, author of the 12-Week Year for Writers. If you enjoyed today's episode, please submit a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps. And for weekly updates on the podcast and other writing resources, you can subscribe to my newsletter at getyourwritingdone.com. Have you ever been thinking about a writing project but then said, I don't know everything I need to know about that, so I shouldn't start that project right now. I should wait till I'm more confident about what I know. Or have you ever found yourself in the middle of a manuscript and asked, why did I ever think I could do this? Have you ever sat around a table of your peers and thought, if these people really knew me, they wouldn't think I belong here? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Club. 70% at least of the public will confront imposter syndrome at some point in their life, and I think almost all writers certainly will. In today's podcast, I'll talk about my own ordeals and offer some strategies for diffusing imposter syndrome. Let's start today's episode with a quick exercise. So I'm going to read you a little scenario and then pause the podcast, write yourself an answer to the scenario, and then we'll come back to that a few minutes down the road. So here's the scenario. Imagine that you are in your first year of medical school and you've just finished the first semester and the school posts the performances of everyone in your class and lo and behold, you are number one in the entire class after the first semester. Your exercise here is to pause the podcast and take a few minutes to write down just a short paragraph about why you're number one and what you think is going to happen in the next semester. That's it. Pretty simple. So we'll see you on the flip side once you've conducted that little self-assessment and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Okay, you're back. So uh, every year uh, at, when I was the director of one of our graduate programs at George Mason, I would uh, welcome the new PhD students within a little orientation session and talk them through a, a short presentation that I like to call the PhD survival guide. And, you know, just sort of some, some tips on the, the common things that students need to figure out while they're in graduate school. And I think most of them probably ignored most of the things I said, being the cocky young folks that they are. But the, one of the things that I always uh, talked about was the imposter syndrome. And the reason I did this is because when I went to graduate school, uh, fresh out of college, without taking any time uh, off in the real world before going to graduate school, um, I felt wildly out of place for about two and a half years because I, you know, looked around and realized, oh my gosh, um, what am I doing here? Look at all these incredibly smart people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting environment for a young, you know, PhD student. It, it sort of, you got to think about who, who you're talking about here. And, you know, these are typically uh, ambitious, very smart people who have always been very good students, 
Most of them have gotten mostly A's throughout their life, and they've been told probably repeatedly that they're a very smart person and they should probably go to school and go to more school and so on and so forth. And, you know, here they are. They've gotten into a, a competitive PhD program. Uh, but once they get there, uh, they, they look around them and they're no longer the smartest person in the room. Uh, they are now not only not the smartest person, but their professors are, uh, you know, at close quarters and who are, you know, wildly impressive people whose work you may have been reading for the past several years and kind of in wonder at how amazing it is. You've got other students who are more advanced than, than you are. So you're not only not smarter than the kids in your own cohort, but but you're blown away by the expertise and knowledge and capabilities of the people who are one, two, three, four, five years ahead of you. Um, and you can really, it's very easy to doubt that you belong in that situation. Uh, as I said, it took me probably two and a half years until I started to feel like I was really you know, qualified in a sense to, to be there. And it wasn't so much that, that I had changed. It was that my uh, comfort level had changed. And, but, but, you know, it occurred to me upon becoming a graduate school director that, that, you know, there is a, there is a process, there is a, a process for overcoming the imposter syndrome. There are some strategies you can use. You don't have to just wander around feeling bad for several years. Um, it helps to actually talk about that. And so that's, that's my goal today is to talk about it and, and let's sort of figure out what's going on, why it's going on. And let's talk about some strategies that we can use to push through it because it can be a very, very um, painful uh, feeling this and, and very detrimental to our own uh, writing, our own productivity. So, you know, first let's just be clear and define imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is, you know, not, not too complicated here. It's uh, the feeling or belief that you are not as competent as others think you are. So basically the feeling that you're a phony or that you're an imposter, that you're masquerading as an expert, or in our case, that we're masquerading as a, a writer, when in fact, when people pull back the, the curtain, they'll realize that we're, we're just pretending, and or we're not very good, after all. And, and this is such a common, common feeling. If you're feeling this, if you've ever felt this, you are not alone. I was reading some research, and uh, the research suggests that somewhere maybe between 25 and 30% of all folks um, regularly kind of suffer a chronic sense of imposter syndrome, and that anywhere, and, and, and it's a little bit hard to, to know for sure with this stuff, but, but very common um, data point is that at least 70% of folks have felt the imposter syndrome at some point. And I'm going to guess that among writers and intellectuals, creators in general, that number has got to be closer to 100%. <laughs> that's, that's my experience from talking to people who write for a living anyway. I don't, I don't think I can name you a single person who says to me they have never felt like an imposter of some kind. So if it's so common, there should be, there's probably a, a, an obvious cause to all of it. Uh, and I don't know if that's true. But there are some pretty common causes, at least in a general sense, that, that research identifies. Uh, one is probably the most, I think, common, or at least the one that's most commonly referred to, is, is family pressure uh, that you dealt with growing up as a kid. Um, very commonly, people who suffer from imposter syndrome had parents who, you know, 
for good intentions in many cases, probably all the cases, or hopefully all the cases, uh, but from, from a sense of trying to be a good parent, put a lot of pressure on your performance as a student, maybe as an athlete, uh, whatever it might have been. And you felt, you internalized this, um, this sense of uh, danger of failing to meet expectations of your parents. And then that tends over time to get kind of externalized to everyone who's in a position to judge peers, bosses, uh, and so on. So family pressures is probably number one. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, when your imposter syndrome gets triggered is, is probably almost as important. Um, and, you know, like I said, I, I didn't think of myself as an imposter until I got to graduate school. I had, I'd been feeling pretty high on myself until the first couple of weeks of classes. So it turns out, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, that when we uh, start to inhabit new roles or take on new challenges, uh, these are the key moments when our feelings of phoniness or our fears about not meeting expectations tend to to go skyward. And so, you know, for 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 sure, that means you know students when they hit their next level of schooling are going to very often encounter that. Um, anybody joining a new and competitive environment of some kind is very likely going to feel that. And you know, graduate schools would certainly. Um, meet that bill, but many, many, many different workplaces uh, also are competitive and so would trigger these kinds of feelings of imposter syndrome. I have read um, a lot of, in a lot of the business literature, you'll read that it's super common for CEOs, even CEOs who have been CEOs for a long time, to feel imposter syndrome when they uh, are doing something that's new for them. You know, entrepreneurs feel it all the time and writers certainly feel it. Young writers who are starting out can feel it. Uh, writers who are trying to write a second book often feel it because they feel like maybe the first one was just sort of a lucky thing or people didn't really read it, so they don't know. And the second one is the one where you're going to get found out. Um, so new challenges, new roles, competitive environments, these really trigger um, this imposter syndrome for a lot of us. Uh, and, you know, they also sort of suggest in the research that, uh, you know, your own personality type can kind of feed into this. And I, I don't know if, you know, is perfectionism a personality sort of thing? I, I guess so. Um, certainly, um, people have connected imposter syndrome to perfectionism. Sometimes it's a strategy that we adopt to deal with our feelings of imposter syndrome. So I wouldn't want to say that's a personality type, but I suppose there are people who maybe you know have some like kind of a neurotic need for perfection, and that could that could fuel. Um, they, they they suggest in the research that that's correlated with with imposter syndrome feelings. Um, and finally, the last thing I think is of note is that, and interestingly, where the original coining of the phrase came from was a, a study in the late 70s by two uh, women um, who did research on high-achieving women. And, and ever since then, is, at first, the, the, the concept was actually kind of imagined as a female-only kind of condition. Uh, but after that, the, you know, it resonated so widely because it's actually so widely felt a problem. It, it, it stopped being seen as a, as a woman only thing, but research since then has actually confirmed that women do in fact, um, suffer from imposter syndrome more commonly than men do. And I think that reflects, you know, without getting too sociological here, it reflects our society and the hierarchies and the, the fact that women have greater struggles, especially in male dominated environments that are seen as competitive, uh, around, um, sort of, you know, being super smart or brilliant or 
it, things like that. And in those fields that sort of research really interesting has shown that, um, that the gap in imposter syndrome is worse between women and men in fields like physics uh, or economics, where, where there's a real emphasis on being brilliant. And women are, in those situations are just much more likely to feel like they're, they're phonies because in those fields, you know, it's these towering giants who are all men historically. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think it's pretty easy to imagine how much harder it would be to be a woman in those fields and feel like you belong. So women uh, more commonly suffer from imposter syndrome than men. So you're probably aware if you suffer from imposter syndrome or not. Um, but as I was doing some reading about this, I thought it was kind of interesting to, to look at some of the different symptoms or signs that people display when they're suffering from imposter syndrome. Because, you know, as a, as a professor and as a coach, for writers, I'm, I'm often in the position of trying to figure out what's going on with someone else. And, and sometimes people don't want to tell you, sometimes they don't know themselves what's going on yet. Um, and so, so, you know, looking at these signs in other people, sometimes I can get a, a bead on things. Um, but one of the first things, and, and let's come back to our, our medical school uh, scenario that I gave you in, in, in that one. And here's the, here's a fun story about that one. I first encountered this scenario or experiment in 1982 in the fall, uh, my first year in high school and uh, our psychology teacher who was just a wonderful woman, Mrs. Smoller, if you're out there, loved your class. Um, and she gave us this exercise and we duly all sat, you know, wrote, wrote our little narratives out. And then she sort of explained the aha and she had us look back at our things. And, and the first thing to look for is, you know, to what did you attribute your success in that first semester? Was it something internal? Was it internal to you? Oh, I'm very smart and I'm very hardworking. And so I studied a long time and so I got good grades. That would be an internal description of your success. On the other hand, what it was very common for people to write was, oh, I just got lucky. Um, some of the other kids, you know, maybe were smarter, so they didn't take it as seriously, but I panicked and so I worked or whatever, right? So uh, if, you ex if you externalize your success and you, you know, either downplay it or you ascribe it to other factors um, or you assume they must have made a mistake. I can't be number one, something like that. Uh, and then when looking ahead, I probably won't be number one again. That was a fluke. It won't, ha you know, that kind of talk that that's a sign that you're, you're, you're a sufferer from imposter syndrome or that in the right conditions, you probably would suffer from imposter syndrome. So the, the first sign is when you, when you hear yourself or others attributing their success or you attribute your own success to external factors, instead of sort of owning your success and being the cause of your success, you identify other reasons for that outside yourself. Right? Because you're the imposter. It couldn't be due to you. So it must have been due to other things, right? Oh, I just, you know, my book got lucky. It would, you know, it normally would have been ignored, but there was this one thing that happened and so, you know, whatever, whatever, right? So that's, that's sort of maybe the most obvious symptom. Um, but another one is um, so agonizing over your own performance and feeling really, really bad about even small errors or tiny imperfections that you think, uh, you know, you, you should have done better and, and so on. I, you know, I, I've talked to some people, won't name names here, but, but people who still mull over like bad grades they got in middle school. Uh, and we're talking about people who are in their fifties and sixties <laughs> and, and they, you know, they're, they're, 
they're so, um, uh, you know, bent out of shape by even the smallest things, even though they got an A in the class or whatever it might be, they're always worried that any, any imperfection is going to be uh, uh, the, the first end of the wedge that reveals their, their, their phoniness, that they're not actually as good as people think they are. And so if, if you find yourself, you see others really getting bent out of shape about very small things, um, that, that could be a sign that imposter syndrome is, is lurking behind there. Um, being super sensitive on, uh, to constructive criticism is another sign, right? I mean, none of us likes being criticized, uh, even constructively, probably. Um, but when you fear being revealed as a phony, think how much more dangerous criticism feels because it feels like this, the first step towards the unzipping of the curtain to reveal whoop, nothing. Right. And so if, if you are feeling like an imposter, you're going to be super sensitive, going to be very defensive about criticism. Um, and then the other sign, and I, I see this in, um, you know, my classes sometimes is in a group setting, if you hear someone or find yourself downplaying your own expertise, your own skills and abilities, uh, sort of, you know, I, I, I'm from the Midwest. So sometimes the all shucks thing is, is the appropriate modesty. But, um, but what I mean is when people sort of repeatedly suggest that, uh, well, I'm not really an expert, or I don't really know, you You probably know better than I do, you know, that sort of thing. Um, this is perhaps a person who is struggling with imposter syndrome. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that might um, show up in people's behavior over, over time. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as one kind of, you know, of one flavor of imposter syndrome. I think it hits us all probably a little differently. Um, but, but hit us all, most of us anyway, it does. I, you know, and I know this, and the, one of the main reasons I, I talk to my students about this is not only do I, you know, still have very vivid memories of these, you know, looking around the class going, what am I doing here? Uh, but I also suffered even later on, uh, when I was just about finished with my dissertation, and I was actually already teaching. Um, I had written a conference paper for uh, our annual um, meeting for political scientists, you know, big 10,000 people, you know, lots of panels, uh, and everyone goes and gives talks and so on and so forth. And you know, it's basically a boondoggle to visit Chicago or New York. But, you know, it's, it's important for your professional development. And especially as a young professor, I was trying to meet and network with people and, you know, so on and so forth. So I was on this panel and I'd written this paper. And I'd sent the paper to the to the panelists and to the chair, who was also the discussant. And and this was a very august member of of the sort of subfield of political science that this paper was in. And I mean, august, like I had read all this person's material and I used one of his textbooks in class. And, and that's a big, big dog. And I was like excited at first because, you know, that always means there's going to be a lot of people attending your panel. So you know, you're going to get some exposure for your paper and that's great. Um, but as the event got closer, I started getting nervous because I started doubting whether my paper was good enough, um, you know, for being flogged publicly by one of the leading lights of my field. And so I was nervous and I was practicing my little presentation, but I wasn't feeling any better about it. And then my wife and I went to Chicago where the conference was being held and I wasn't feeling any better about it. And then the day of my panel came and I was just sweating like a dog and I was panicked because I was positive that this paper was so bad that it had no business being in the conference. No business. I had no business 
going to this panel to talk about it in public and that I was going to be mortally embarrassed um, by anything that this guy had to say about the paper. And so I did something more or less, you know, out of bounds. I skipped the panel entirely, did not give the presentation and felt terrible about doing that because, and you know, frankly, I, I don't, I don't know anyone or at least no one's told me I've never heard of anyone else doing that. Right. None of my friends that I know has ever skipped a panel because they were embarrassed to present their paper, but I did. And I felt terrible, but I was like whew, relieved. No one had to hear about this terrible paper. Um, and so then the funny thing is I then bumped into, I bumped into this chair and the one thing I didn't want to do was him to think I had skipped on purpose or something. So I, I caught him at a cocktail party type of thing at the hotel where the conference was. And I said, Oh, you know, so sorry. I, you know, made up some baloney about something, something time. I missed the thing, whatever, you know, you lie like you do to get up uh, looking like an idiot. And he's like, Oh, okay, that's too bad. You know, I want to talk to you about that. Uh, you know, something. And, and basically he said several nice things about the paper and he said, Oh yeah, this, you know, one part you could, that could need some work, but you know, there's, there's a lot of promise to it. And so just like that, I realized that I had been suffering from imposter syndrome. I had an unrealistic sense of what others were, you know, going to think. I had a, just an over sort of fear about what, what, you know, my quality was relative to the rest of the profession and all this sort of stuff. And, and at, at that point, I, I vowed not to skip another panel again because I thought my paper was no good um, because, you know, I couldn't imagine having a worse feeling about a paper than I did at that moment. Um, and then seeing it, seeing all that fear, you know, be nothing in the end, that was a really big lesson for me. And so, um, but what would have helped, what would have helped a lot is if someone had ever told me there was this thing called imposter syndrome and that you're going to feel it. And here's the situations where you're, you're probably going to run into it. And here's how you can talk back to it. Right. And the problem is if you don't do this, if you don't talk back to your imposter syndrome, right? I mean, yes, we all get it. We all have it. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can leave it alone. That doesn't mean it's okay to let it sit there and wander, you know, roam around inside you unchecked and unchallenged because it can have a lot of negative effects. I mean, number one, you can miss professional opportunities to go present to a great audience and make a connection with an important person because you felt like you were going to be revealed, right? So it can keep you from doing things that are important for your own professional development. Um, it can, it can, it can build in you a, a crushing self-doubt that can stall you on your writing, that can make you quit, that can make you change professions because you don't believe you have it in you. Um, it can drive you towards perfectionism and overachieving because you're trying so hard to paddle to keep ahead of the reveal that you're not real, right? That you just keep cranking and cranking and cranking and trying to make it up on volume because you can't feel it, right? Uh, which in turn then is a recipe for burnout um, and a recipe for potentially never getting to do the things that you really want to do because you can't find a way to be peaceful about it. Um, and you know, when, when those that start happening, those things start happening where you, you're, you've basically blocked yourself from doing the things that you love or that you want to do that that's another recipe for depression, right? That's, that's not going to go well. So there's a lot of reasons to take imposter syndrome seriously. Now, you know, if you have the light form where you can kind of shrug it off and, and go for it, that's great. I hope that's you. 
um, was not true for me. I had to, I had to work at a little bit. Um, and, and it's not true for a lot of people that I have met over the years. Um, and so I think it really is worth, um, sort of taking stock of, you know, where you're at, uh, with, with imposter syndrome. And if you're, if you're feeling it, um, then maybe, uh, one of the strategies I'm going to outline here over the next few minutes will be, will be useful because I think in my experience, uh, not only was I able to sort of defeat my own imposter syndrome, not that it is 100% permanent, right? There are still situations where these feelings can crop up. Um, but I've also seen a lot of other folks manage the process as well and using some of these strategies. So I, I think none of these are original to me. I've borrowed them from other people over time. This is how these things go. I'm just trying to hand the torch uh, of knowledge down, down to you guys. So I won't take credit for any of these except for in the shepherding of them to you. So the first thing I... I tell my students when, when they come to graduate school is I tell them, you're going to feel like an imposter. <laughs> That's fine. It's okay. Um, and um, it will go away over time. So the first thing is just to, is to relax and not worry about the fact that you have it, right? It's, it's not like you just got cancer. Um, you don't have to worry that it's going to kill you. Uh, everybody gets it and it goes away over time. So the first thing is to kind of relax and not create a national security emergency over it. Um, time will take care of some of this, as long as you do some of the other things that I think naturally you're going to want to do. So the second thing that I tell them to do is to do the work. So um, students who come into a PhD program wanting to become political scientists or you know, whatever they might want to be doing, but in my case, political scientists and at first, when they come in, they're not a political scientist, right? They're a student of political science. They've, they've been an undergraduate student of political scientists, but maybe that means they've taken six courses. They're not a political scientist yet, but they want to be one. They want to be a real one who feels like one. And so the first thing to do then is to do the work of a political scientist. So what does that mean? Well, it means you read stuff in your field. It means you start to write papers in your field. It means starting to go to conferences in your field. It means writing conference papers in your field, trying to publish journal articles or op-eds or doing experiments or collecting data or whatever it is that is interesting to you in the field. But to my mind, uh, feelings of imposter syndrome have trouble holding up when we start doing the real work, right? If you don't feel like a real whatever, doing the work is a very concrete response because you're actually doing it. So it's, it's kind of hard to argue that you're not when you're actually doing it. So it gets, and, and again, that accumulates over time for you. So the more of the work you do, and in our case, we're talking about writing. So the more writing you do, the more you're going to feel like a writer because that's exactly what you are. All right. So that's, that's the first thing I or the second thing I tell them. The third thing I tell them is to uh, build their identity uh, by engaging community. And so for writers, and I've talked about the importance of writing community a lot in different ways, um, but spending time with mentors, spending time with uh, peers, spending time uh, in the institutions and organizations of your, of your field, you know, if you're a science fiction writer, find science fiction people to hang out with. If you're a fantasy writer, find fantasy people. If you're, you know, a literary person, go to, you know, a literary uh, book club, whatever it might be, do, be with the people who are doing what you're doing 
And what that does is it helps socialize you. So when you know that you do the same things as the people who you look around and go, hey, that's a writer, that's a writer. When you're doing the same things that they're doing on a regular basis, in the same places, at the same time, it tells your brain that's who you are. You build your identity that way, right? And that's really, I think, in a sense, what imposter syndrome is about, right? You don't feel like you fully inhabit a particular identity. Um, and in the case of a, a lot of writers, I, I've, you, know, you see this all over the internet. When you read people's kind of concerns and doubts, you see this phrase a lot of times, I want to be a real writer. And I don't know, you know, that's such a strange phrase from a certain perspective, because what the heck would that be? What do you mean a real writer? And I think the problem is a lot of us have all sorts of different feelings about what that might mean. I means maybe getting paid, getting published, having other people like your stuff. I mean, it could mean any or all of those things. But the fact is, is being a real writer is called being a writer. It's someone who writes. And that's really the main thing that, you know, being a writer is about. But when you hang out with other writers who are writing, when you go to writing dates, when you uh, participate in NaNoWriMo with hundreds of thousands of other people, when you do different things like that, you're, you're becoming a writer. You get identified with being a writer. And then I think the word real can drop away from your, from your worries because it, your brain will eventually sort of become soaking, you know, in that writing juice and, and you won't worry so much anymore. I, I think community is a huge um, uh, buffer against uh, um, imposter syndrome. Um, another strategy is to acknowledge your fears publicly without selling yourself short. So what I mean by that is that, uh, and I see this is uh, true in so many professional, uh, arenas and certainly the academic arena. I mean, finding, find me a professor who's good at saying, I don't know, and I'll give you a hundred dollars. Um, the last thing most professors ever want to do is admit they don't know something, don't know how to do something, haven't read something. Um, there's a lot of imposter syndrome in academia. Um, and that's so, it's so exhausting to be like that. And the antidote is simply to admit, I don't know. Or, you know what, sometimes I worry that I'm not any good at this. Sometimes when I go to a conference, I worry that everyone's going to think my stuff sucks, right? Saying those things doesn't make you a bad person. Saying those things doesn't make you an imposter or make you a phony. It makes you a real person like everyone else. And in fact, you know, and as writers, as all the fiction writers out there and even some of the nonfiction writers, right? What do we need in our stories to be able to relate to our main characters? You need to see their vulnerabilities. Nobody likes you until you're vulnerable. So you might be impressive to other people if you never say, I don't know, but no one's going to like you, right? So acknowledging that you don't know doesn't make you weak. It makes you friendly and approachable. But when you admit that you don't know something, that doesn't mean degrade yourself in public. You don't have to sell yourself short and say you know nothing, right? When you say, I don't know something, it, that's what you're saying. You're not saying, I don't know anything. You're saying, I have many things that I know, many things I know how to do, but what I don't is know how to do that, right? And so I think what you'll find is that nothing blows up, nothing goes boom, um, no one thinks you're a fraud. Uh, in fact, people will come up and go, you know, I've been wondering about that too. My <laughs> goodness to gracious that I, you know, uh, this is a slightly off topic sort of a thing, but I, just to tell you how important the vulnerability thing is, many years ago I was working in an organization and I gave a little goodbye speech for a colleague who was retiring. And I teared up a little bit. I tear up a lot. So I teared up a little bit at the end, kind of got choked up. And he was a good friend. And 
And someone came up who I didn't really, I wasn't close to in the organization. It was a smallish organization, but we didn't work in the same building. So we didn't really have a lot of interaction. And, you know, but we had probably been in the same organization for a couple of years. And she came up afterwards and go, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I thought you were just like one of those polished, you know, professional assholes. I, this is, this surprised me, you know, and she's all of a sudden, like, she's all warm and friendly to me. And I was like, what? I, when did I ever, what did I ever do to you? But it was clear that she hadn't liked me at all before I cried in public in front of my organization, but then I was okay. I mean, it was a sort of a bracing lesson that being impressive, um, is off-putting, um, being vulnerable is attracting, right? And so strange, but, but that's what I'm talking about, which is don't, don't be afraid to, to admit that you have fears and concerns, uh, in public or to, you know, colleagues or whatever. That just means you're human, right? And people are going to, uh, actually support you, uh, and not tear you down. And if they do tear you down, they're a terrible person. You should get rid of them. Okay. Um, here's another strategy for you. Um, I would argue that one of the, the best ways to overcome your feelings of imposter syndrome is to teach what you know. If you're a writer, find some high school students to teach, find some junior high students to teach, find some college kids to teach, find some other fellow adult people to teach. Uh, when you're unsure about whether or not you're an authority about something, if you teach it, it will convince you that you are. Um, and you know, the funny thing about that is there is a bit of a journey in teaching things because I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing more scary than getting up in front of a group of people if you've never done it before and teaching them a topic for the first time. That can be a very bracing experience in itself. Um, because, you know, what if everyone finds out I'm an idiot and, you know, so on and so forth. But I, here's what I will tell you, having been through that myself, um, after about five minutes, when people are nodding and going, oh, cool, yep, and that you realize they're tracking and that they want to know what's next, you'll realize that, oh, wow, I do know stuff. Um, and, you know, there are so many benefits from teaching the things you know that, you probably shouldn't need any additional convincing, but man, you, you learn what you know. And in fact, it's kind of a helpful thing to find out what you don't know yet, right? To teach things. But one of the things you definitely will come out with is an understanding that, hey, you may not know everything, but you know a lot more about whatever it is that you do than, than most people do. And, and that will help erode this worry about imposter syndrome, right? Uh, so I, I really recommend teaching. It doesn't have to be a formal thing. It can be an informal thing, mentoring, coaching, whatever. Um, okay. And then something that all the psychologists agree on and that I have, um, had to do myself a lot, a lot of self-talk in my own career, um, is don't compare your insides, uh, to other people's outsides. Um, and in general, uh, don't compare so much. Uh, and I know telling that, telling social animals not to be social and to compare themselves to others is sort of a fool's errand. Um, uh, but, but, but it's really important not to determine your self-worth by whether or not you're better than some random other person in the world or worse yet a, a non-random other person who you have no business comparing yourself to uh, it's very hard in an academic world for example to feel like you're a really super great 
researcher when there are so many people around the world who are so much more super great than you are. <laughs> There's always somebody who's written more books, always somebody who's published more papers, has more citations, you know, more awards, whatever it might be. And it can be hard, man. And some of them are in your own department, some of them in your own university. And it could be hard to keep going when you realize, wow, um, you know, to be a to be a real political scientist, I, I should be X, Y, or Z. Or, you know, I must not be very good at my job because, you know, whatever. But you know what, that, that kind of thinking is useless, right? We do not live in a zero sum world. We live in a positive sum world where everyone can succeed at writing. Um, just because someone else writes one way or the other way or did this or did that, it has no bearing on what you're writing or whether or not you're a writer. Um, and so it, you know, that is just something that is a losing game because, you know, there can be all sorts of reasons for the way other people appear, um, that, um, just, uh, that you don't know, right. You don't know the story there. And so even if you're trying to compare, you're probably doing a bad job anyway. So I, I think you need to give comparing uh, between you and others a break whenever possible. I, I struggle with it. I, I, I do all sorts of things to avoid um, trying to compare to, to people around me, um, including, you know, sometimes trying not to spend time in competitive environments, right? I mean, academic departments are pretty competitive places, uh, just sort of people naturally, it's kind of the coin of the realm, stacking up publications and things like that. And so I find that spending um, somewhat less time uh, talking with, with those particular people about those topics is useful for me. So you may find similar strategies. Um, and then a final thing that I would just say, um, if you are struggling with imposter syndrome, and it's blocking you on a particular project because it's generating fear of moving forward. Um, and, and I'll sort of link this back um, to the 12 week year is to create a plan for dealing with whatever the project at hand is and breaking it down into baby steps, baby, baby, baby steps. Because I think what happens is it's when we look at the full thing that we're trying to create a whole book at once in our mind, or I'm trying to create a paid newsletter, or I'm trying to create a business, you know, to a book to build my business around. And, and you're thinking of the mountain of things that go into that, that can be paralyzing, because we can all ask ourselves, do I have it in me to do that? Even if you've done it before, you can ask, do I have it in me to do that again? Um, but but of course you do, right? There's no there's nothing really stopping you here, right? It's just but the doing. And so what can help as I think almost always helps at the beginning of a big project is to break that sucker down into tiny, tiny steps that are all easily doable and just build some momentum with baby steps that don't ask you to be able to do everything. You don't have to be able to do everything to start the first thing. And I think that can help banish those thoughts because once you get a few of those things under your belt, almost always we start feeling more confident and staying focused on the next thing ahead of us instead of looking at that big mountain, right? Um, you're not going to feel imposter syndrome, but can I go do, read an article? Can I go do some research? Can I go write one scene, right? Those things are things that you know you can do. So baby steps uh, for the win. All right, um, man, it's a big topic. I'll put a couple of links to some other resources in the show notes, um, but um, I would be very interested in hearing uh, stories of overcoming or grappling with imposter syndrome. So be sure to leave a comment on the on the podcast page or shoot me an email. Uh, and until next time, happy writing.